Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. On this episode, we'll be talking about traumatic stress in conflict areas with Lori Rudolph, whose research has focused on the West Bank of Palestine. Rudolph is an adjunct assistant professor at the University of New Mexico and professor of clinical counseling at New Mexico Highlands University. She's also a UNM alum. She has taught at Bethlehem University and Al-Quds University, and she is working with social workers and therapists in the city of Hebron to develop a mental health and advocacy center there. It's part of her longstanding peace work as a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. I am Jewish American, so the issue of Israel has been a part of my life since childhood. What led me to my travels to the West Bank back in 2004, I think, was more about wanting to express my solidarity to the Palestinian people because I was very much at odds with Israeli policy and its treatment of the Palestinian people. So as a Jewish person, I felt that I needed to express my opposition, and uh, I did so through working on the ground as a mental health professional. And this was specifically requested by a number of leaders in the West Bank community. When I asked them, how can I be of service, they said what they really wanted was mental health support. And so that is when my journey began. You are Jewish. You felt this affinity with Palestinians. Correct. Do you mind talking a bit more about that? I mean, for the longest time, I was a Zionist as a child and young adult. And what um, is that, when you say that, what does that mean to you? What that meant is I believed that Israel was indeed the Jewish homeland, and it was very much in need to provide Jews worldwide with a safe place in the event that anti-Semitism reached the scope and scale of what happened in Europe in other words, the Holocaust. And I, like many people of my generation, I'm a baby boomer, second wave baby boomer, was spoon-fed with a lot of skewed facts about the history, what led to the establishment of the State of Israel. So, for example, I was taught that it was indeed a land without a people for a people without a land. And I was very much unaware that it was populated by another people, the Palestinian people and that it was a thriving communities with cities and villages and industry. And I was very much unaware of that. I went to Israel when I was a teenager, when I was 16 and 17. I lived there on a kibbutz. That is when I began to question what's really going on here. I noticed that there were, back then, everybody referred to Palestinians as Arabs. And... I picked up on a lot of racist attitudes towards the Arab people back then. In other words, Palestinians. That term was not used, and I realized later on that that was an extension of the denial of the existence of Palestinians or the determination to erase their identity. So that stayed with me. I was also very much influenced and informed by the civil rights movement, so I was very sensitive to the issue of racism and discrimination. Also, my parents grew up uh, in the U.S. during a time when discrimination against Jews was systemic. Back then, 
Jews were barred from many places. For example, they weren't able to live in certain rentals, purchase certain homes, enter certain restaurants and hotels. There were quotas placed on the number of Jewish students who were admitted into different universities. Anti-Semitism during their time was overt, and as a result, my parents raised us in a very insulated community, wanting to protect us from the anti-Semitism that they were subjected to. That contributed to my sensitivity to social uh, injustices and all forms of discrimination against people. That's interesting. Some people would have experiences like that and maybe go more towards a more Zionist point of view, Mm -hmm. as you expressed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my case, I wasn't able to reconcile the contradictions. And through my activism, I became an activist uh, in this issue in 1982 during the Lebanese War and the Sabra and Shatila massacre. Those are refugee camps. Yes, those are refugee Mm -hmm. camps. And And it was aided and abetted by Ariel Sharon at the time. He was a general in the military. So had it not been for the Israeli army, the massacre wouldn't have happened. And that was the turning point for me. And I and others co-founded a group called Jews for Peace in the Middle East. And it was then that I began to engage with fellow students who are Palestinians. And it was at that time when I learned the Palestinian narrative And perhaps the pivotal moment, if you will, was when I met one of my friend's mother who was directly impacted by the Nakba. The Nakba refers to the Palestinian catastrophe, ethnic cleansing, when they were pushed out of what was then historic Palestine. In 1948. In 1948. She became a refugee along with her family. And so her telling me that story was a real eye-opener and a complete negation of everything that I had believed up until then. So I could no longer deny the truth. And that's when I became an activist in support of Palestinian rights. So right now, in some of the Mm -hmm. protests around what's been happening Mm -hmm. in Gaza and the Middle East, Mm -hmm. some people tend to conflate being Jewish with supporting the Israeli government. Uh-huh. How do you perhaps navigate some of these tensions? I mean, there's many ways to answer this okay. question. I mean, Israel is a nation state. The Israeli government, and I think on some, on some level this is intentional, they tend to conflate the nation state Israel, uh, which they identify as the Jewish state, with Jews worldwide. And there are many Jews worldwide who do not identify with Israel. So, for example, shortly after the Hamas attack on October 7th, President Biden issued a statement offering unconditional support to Israel. But in that statement, he invoked the Holocaust and sent the message that Hamas posed an existential threat to all Jews. So suddenly this turned into attack not only on Israelis, and those who were victimized, who were attacked, weren't only Israeli Jews. Many nationalities were represented. 
people who are guest workers from other countries. Yes, and, people yeah. from other countries, other nationalities, mm-hmm. Bedouins, etc. And so Biden committed to never letting what happened during the Holocaust to happen again. So he equated this with the Holocaust and this extended to Jews worldwide. And this mirrored what Bibi Netanyahu said as well. So there seems to be this deliberate conflation, Jewish people worldwide with the Israeli population, which is predominantly Jewish, but not only Jewish. Mm-hmm. And that in some ways backfires because it feeds into the anti-Semitic trope that Jews are loyal to Israel and not loyal to wherever they happen to be living in. That's a classic anti-Semitic trope that I repeatedly come across. Mm. So it's harmful for Jews worldwide. As a Jewish per- person, it's it's very difficult for me to come to terms with the fact that what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip, in my opinion, is an act of genocide. This is unprecedented. I don't remember ever witnessing this level of brutality and violence uh, since I became an activist on this issue. It's hard for me to grapple with this because of our own history of persecution, including genocide in Europe. And watching this unfold has been incredibly painful. And I feel that as a Jew who shares that history, that I need to speak out against this. I can't turn my back to what's happening in the Gaza Strip, and I can't deny what's happening. Mm -hmm. I would say that most of the Gaza Strip has been pretty much destroyed. There is absolutely no safe place where people in the Gaza Strip can seek refuge, and the death toll is just overwhelming. You have been working on a project with some colleagues in Hebron, Mm -hmm. in the West Bank, Mm -hmm. around uh, mental health and trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is, we're talking about now what's happening in Gaza, but children have been facing this for decades. So I did have the opportunity to teach at two different universities, at Al-Quds University in the Community Mental Health Program and at Bethlehem University in the Social Work Program. And I also have worked with different NGOs in developing or helping them develop programs mainly tailored to youth, children, and women. And I have also done a lot of training, fundraising, and grant writing in support of their projects. I have conducted research on the psychosocial impact of the protracted Israeli military occupation on refugee women in particular. And then more recently, I began looking at the impact of settler violence on Palestinians who live in the old city of Hebron. And I have been working with uh, Palestinian colleagues on the ground there, and that is when we decided to turn this more into an applied research study, meaning that we wanted to develop a mental health center informed by our research findings. And that is what we're in the process of doing. 
This is University Showcase, and I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm speaking with Lori Rudolph, a UNM alum, adjunct assistant professor, and a professor of clinical psychology at New Mexico Highlands University. She's working with social workers and therapists in Palestine to set up a mental health and advocacy center in the city of Hebron. The old city of Hebron is unique in that you have settlers, and these are settlers who I would consider to be religious zealots and who are very much intent on pushing out the Palestinians who have been living there for a very, very long time, and those are their homes. So we're talking about... Baruch Goldstein, for example, who was actually an American Jew who moved to this Israeli settlement called Kiryat Arba, and he is the one who went to the Abraham Mosque, or the Ibrahimi Mosque, and shot and killed, I think, about 29 Palestinians during their praying. So that's kind of an illustration of the extremism that you find among the Israeli settlers who live in or around the Old City. So the Palestinians who live in the Old City of Hebron are subjected to daily harassment and children are repeatedly traumatized. I don't know of any family who I interviewed that was not and continues to not be impacted by the threat of violence and actual acts of violence. People have been killed by the settlers and also by the Israeli soldiers. Children are oftentimes harassed when they're trying to get to their schools. There was a time when they had people from other countries there to accompany them to school, hoping that that would deter the settlers from harassing the children. You have incidents where settlers are throwing food at them, rocks at them, stones at them, dirty diapers. So it appears that their intent to make their lives as miserable as possible with the hope that they will all leave. My goodness, how do you do community mental health in a situation like that? That's the question that we had to pose. How do you work with people who are living in a complex zone that involves continuous exposure to traumatic experiences? So there are certain tenets that drive the model that we developed, and can I share some of those mm-hmm. tenets? So we believe that because community well-being and situations of intractable and chronic conflict is undermined by a sense of uncertainty and insecurity, disruption of daily routines, which is what we see all the time in the old city of Hebron, and social stress and collective trauma. We believe that the political and oppressive realities impacting people's lives must be recognized and integrated into our work. We also believe that we cannot separate collective resistance from trauma due to the continued loss, dispossession, and injustice <clears throat> that the people experience. We also believe that mental health is invariably affected in contexts characterized by continuous conflict and chronic violence. So we believe that psychosocial interventions that are informed by human rights approach need to consider the political nature of human suffering 
and incorporate interventions that will increase the protection of vulnerable populations, enhance their dignity, and optimize their well-being. So that's the framework that we're working with. So you cannot separate the community mental health from the political and social situation. Yes. How do you design interventions in a context like that? We need to look at how to engender agency and empowerment. So people don't feel completely helpless. Right. And so we're working from the premise, and this is based on our research and research conducted by others, especially in the Gaza Strip, that children's subjective and psychological well-being are influenced by a sense of agency and political commitment. Uh, So this is very specific to what is happening on the ground in the occupied Palestinian territories, including the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Steadfastness, empowerment, and resistance together with meaningful experiences of personal and social suffering are qualities that provide children and adults with a sense of coherence, growth, and concrete survival skills for resisting political and military violence. And this is something we want to build on in our interventions. So we believe that trauma-informed models that draw from resiliency frameworks that incorporate protective factors rather than draw from models that tend to pathologize individuals, and that kind of goes back to the Western model. So here Mm -hmm. we tend to decontextualize our interventions when working with people who are dealing with trauma or who are in a post-traumatic situation. There we're dealing with people who are in a continuous traumatic, stressful situation. So again, the interventions have to be very different. And we need to figure out, once again, how to engender a sense of agency and empowerment, meaning and purpose in their lives. Mm -hmm. We have to kind of step out of the reality that we're familiar with here. And this extends to the way we offer mental health services and the way we approach working with people who are in need of mental health support. It's very different here from there. Also, you know, when we're talking about the Palestinian people, people who live in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and Israel proper, they tend to have more of a collectivist orientation. They're not nearly as individualistic as we are here. So it makes sense that when we do work with the people on the ground there that we take more of a community approach to working with them. I mean, I do see some potential applications in communities in the U.S. that do face daily violence. You know, I don't think that this model that we developed needs to be limited to what's happening on the ground in Palestine. I mean, hopefully it can be utilized in many different places that Mm -hmm. maybe share some of the same characteristics as what we find on the ground in Palestine. So, okay. Yeah. So our findings supported the use of strength-based approaches that incorporate protective factors. Protective factors buffer children and adults from the effects of repeated trauma exposure. That's what we're drawing from when it comes to the interventions that we chose to do. So factors that protect children and youth from the adverse effects of violence include, for example, joining clubs, teams, and other groups, engaging in proactive activities such as advocacy and social action, supportive relationships and with family and members such as coaches, teachers, and other pro-social adults and their communities, 
therapeutic recreational programs, creative arts, theater, summer camps, animation films, puppets, storytelling, sports, songs, playing music, Hmm. and social talks are directed conversations. So this goes way beyond sitting in a therapist's office and processing feelings and thoughts related to a particular traumatic incident. So it's much more integrated. Mm-hmm. Much more community-based. Much more mm-hmm. community-based, yeah. yes. Thank you. So our overall aim then is to shift the focus of mental health interventions from a medical approach to a community-based approach that focuses on interrelatedness of protective factors, mental health, and resiliency to effectively mitigate the psychological impacts resulting from ongoing exposure to occupation-related violence and economic hardship. Mm -hmm. So to achieve this, this is what we're doing. We are prioritizing capacity building through advocacy training using a human rights-based lens, and this involves mentoring youth through the process of developing and implementing youth-led advocacy campaigns, presenting their action plans at a community-wide conference to engage community members in bringing about change, developing a youth-led summer camp, and offering psychosocial support. So again, we're combining many different facets into this model, believing that this is what will facilitate healing and empowerment. So our model is multi-layered and embedded in a context unique to their community and informed by their socio-political and cultural realities. So there have been studies conducted, especially in the Gaza Strip, looking at or measuring levels of functionality and coping strategies, which tend to correlate positively with a sense of wellness, well-being, and self-efficacy. And one of their findings, and this has been um, supported by other studies, is that those who engage in action, who engage in trying to improve their communities, for example, tend to score higher on wellness, tend to develop uh, higher levels of self-efficacy than those who resort to passive coping strategies. And who are you working with on the project in Hebron? So I'm working with a group of social workers Mm -hmm. who are also human rights activists. And so social work is very much embedded in social justice and human rights. These are folks Um, on the ground in the community? These are folks Mm -hmm. on the ground in the community. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with social workers, uh, human rights defenders, psychologists primarily. How far along is the creation of the center? Where? Well, we're in the process of getting funding. We did secure some funding to implement our summer camp mm. program. When that will happen right now is unknown because of what's happening in the West Bank. I mean, the scope and scale of violence in the West Bank has intensified, and they are under complete siege right now. So any kind of movement is almost impossible. It's it's just too dangerous for people to venture out of their villages or cities at this point in time because of the siege. I was planning to go back there now, and it just doesn't seem doable. I mean, it the possibility, the probability of 
even entering into the West Bank is very uncertain. There's a lot of uncertainties right now. Basically, the checkpoints are not necessarily open. One can't ever be sure when they will be open, and then they're maybe open for two hours each day. It strikes me that there are probably not a ton of mental health services available right now. In this particular area in Mm -hmm. the old city of Hebron, there's one center that offers counseling. So the services and the resources are lacking, very Mm -hmm. limited. This is why we chose to work with this community because Mm -hmm. the needs are are enormous and the resources are, are lacking. So hopefully... You know, we can find the needed financial support so we can move forward with this. But again, it's going to be delayed because of what's happening right now. You've been working in this part of the world, in this arena for a long time. I mean, do you ever lose hope that things are going to change and shift? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, right now, the political realities are, are pretty dire. And I don't know what the end game will be. Uh, in this situation. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, the Palestinian people are known for their steadfastness and they are determined to, you know, continue living their lives and finding out ways to improve the quality of their lives. So the work on the ground will continue, even though we may not uh, reach um, a political solution anytime soon that will remedy the never-ending violence that these people are subjected to. In the meantime, the Palestinian people in particular, they need to find ways to help their people cope with this incredibly harsh reality. So mental health services, mental health intervention are very important. So there are many social workers, mental health professionals across the spectrum who are dedicated to finding ways to help one another cope and find a way to live a quality life that has meaning and purpose. May I ask you, I think you're a member of Nahalat Shalom? I'm a member of Nahalat Shalom and I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. We're in the middle of Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. How are you observing Hanukkah during such a dire time? During times like this, I I generally don't do celebrations, um, although I did do a celebration with my granddaughters. Mm -hmm. But it's not a joyful time. So when, you know, lighting the Hanukkah candles, for me, it's it's symbolic of bringing lightness to the darkness that we're now living under. Well, Laurie Rudolph, thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much. That was Lori Rudolph, professor of clinical psychology at New Mexico Highlands University and an adjunct assistant professor at UNM. Find this and all our episodes of University Showcase at KUNM.org. And just a reminder, our schedule is changing slightly in January, and our Friday public affairs shows will now be on Tuesdays at 8.30 a.m. So look for my next episode on Tuesday, January 16th at 8.30. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick, and thank you for listening to University Showcase.